Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Maria Kofi is an award-winning author and adventurer living in Canada and Spain. Her 13th book is out in November 2023 and called Instead, Navigating the Adventures of a Child-Free Life. She's paddled a kayak all over the world, started the adventure travel company Hidden Places with her partner Doug and co-founded the non-profit Elephant Earth Initiative. She's also an award-winning writer. In 1987, seven years after her partner, Joe Tasker, disappeared while trying to summit Mount Everest, Maria wrote Fragile Edge, a personal portrait of loss on Everest. She followed this up with Where the Mountain Casts Its Shadow, exploring what happens to the people left behind when tragedies on mountains happen. It won a 2004 National Outdoor Book Award. Her latest book, Instead, is her memoir about opting for adventure instead of motherhood and the lifelong outcomes of that choice. After two traumatic experiences during her 20s, including a near-drowning in Morocco, Maria determines to seize every day and explore the world. Mixed with her desire for freedom is a new fear of loss, which convinces her against parenthood. She falls in love with Doug, who shares her dreams, well, sort of, and they begin creating a life of adventure. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. And as I was saying, there is absolutely no way that I could distill your life into a few <laughs> short sentences. And your book really covers so much of your life. It was so expansive and I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you so much for writing it. Well, thank you for that. And and it is a real personal <laughs> memoir going through childhood and your whole life up to now. But I wondered why you put the focus on that decision about not becoming a mother as that as part of the book. It came as a surprise, actually. I began writing the book in late 2019. And initially, <clears throat> I was writing about dealing with the fact that I'd suddenly realized I was heading into old age, something I'd managed to cleverly avoid and just ignore up to that point. But, you know, I was in my 60s. Uh, I'd had this really busy life bouncing around the world. I felt very young. Um, I'd always looked younger than my years, but suddenly, kind of in my mid-60s, I realized that people were starting to ask me, when are you going to retire and when are you going to slow down? And I remember a doctor saying something about, oh, yeah, people of your vintage, you know, comments like this. And I was like, okay, this is terrifying. Old age for me felt like this unknown territory that I was heading into, and I just didn't know how to cope with it. So I decided I've always used my writing as a way to <clears throat> solve problems, look back at my life, sort things out. So I decided to look back at, at other times in my life when I faced big challenges and you know, how I dealt with those and, and how could I use what I'd learned to go into this new, new territory um, more prepared. And so, you know, I was looking at different things like, you know, when I was caught in a rip current in my 20s, you know, when I went through terrible bereavement when I was 30, etc. How did I deal with these things, these big challenges? But as I quite early on, first few chapters, I realized that 
I kept writing about the decision not to have children. It just kept cropping up. And it occurred to me that this was the big story in my life. Wow. And was that really Really what I felt compelled to write about? I'm so glad you did, because I feel like it's not something that is written about so Mm. often. And it's definitely something that I started writing a book about something completely else. It's completely different. And then suddenly it started coming up in my writing as well, which Mm. I haven't put out there yet. Was this the first time that you'd really sat down and reflected on it so much? Because it felt like it, there were threads, obviously, with your partner thinking that he did want children earlier on. Like it must have been, as a decision, something that was present throughout your life. It was definitely present throughout my life <clears throat> because my mother desperately wanted me to have mm. children. And I felt very guilty about that. Um, my husband, when we first met, wanted us to have kids, but he also thought we could have an extremely adventurous life with kids along. So it was this ongoing discussion for for quite a long time and ongoing in my head, even as I was traveling around the world, you know, people's reactions to me not having children. But it was the first time that I'd done a really deep dive into it. And, and so many things came out that I didn't expect. I never expected to write in such detail about my relationship with my mother. Mm. <clears throat> and it actually helped me sort things out in my own head and my own heart about that relationship. And um, and even though she, she, she'd already passed by the time I was writing, it kind of brought me even closer to her, you know, re, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, it, it, it did, it did sort of reveal for me what a, in a way, it's just been this theme right through my life. And interestingly enough, I came back to my original question in the book of, okay, how do you deal with old age? How do you head forward into this new stage of your life, final stage of your life? And I circled right back to that with the theme of, of, of not having children. Mm. One thing that I found when I was writing in the same way that it was helping me process things and reflect <coughs> and deal with things is that once I'd written it, I felt like, well, that that helped. But I then it felt like another challenge to think, do I need to put this out? Does this not need to be public? And did you have any thoughts about that? I did. I did. And I wasn't helped by the fact that I... I had quite a few naysayers in the process, um, which is, I think is interesting to share. I haven't shared it that much publicly, but I had an agent who I contacted who said, this is very early in the process. This is like 2000. She said, um, oh, that subject's all, already done. It's been written about. It's not interesting for people. Um, I talked to another agent who said, shockingly, between you and the women who are making this decision now is just far too big. It's not going to be of interest. So, you know, I was having this kind of pushback within the industry and I was thinking, am I making a big mistake in doing this, you know? And But I really felt that it was, well, first of all, I wanted to write it for me. It was, mm-hmm. I was compelled to write this. And as I was, as I was, you know, getting further and further into the book, I realized that this is becoming a much bigger, more visible subject out in the social media world. You know, there's so many now Instagram channels, blogs, etc., of people discussing being child-free, being childless. You know, not having had, you know, not having children by choice or not by choice. It's become a really huge discussion, and um, 
even among and among much younger people than me, you know, the yeah, the, the twenty-year-olds, the thirty-year-olds, and I'm getting a lot of feedback from those people now. That <clears throat> and I also felt, I also felt it was important to have the perspective of an older woman um, looking back at her life, somebody with a long view of being child-free, of having made that decision. And I thought maybe that will be helpful to. Um, People of a younger age who are, you know, thinking about this now. Mm, I, I found it really, really helpful. And I think there's books and and podcasts as well. I, I find that for me, it was it's such a complex and individual mm-hmm. issue <clears throat> that it needs a book for me. Yeah. And and it felt like something. I mean, we're talking spanning decades here, and I don't think you can condense that to a tweet or an. Instagram post can you so for me I felt like it was really valuable that it was in a book one thing that struck me when you were writing about your mum and and just going back to you saying like it is an issue that younger people are thinking about was that we we have a choice or feel like we have a choice and and perhaps that generation didn't so much have a choice of Mm -hmm. Your mother was quite young when she started having children, and mm-hmm. that's something that I see in generations <clears throat> yeah. in our culture as well. And so, yeah, was that something that it, it did feel a big disconnect between your generation and your mother's, mother's generation? And was that one oh, of the massive, reasons? That a massive, because, mm-hmm. I mean, I was born in 1952, post-war, and <clears throat> I, you know, grew up into, you know, the blooming of the second wave of feminism, which I embraced, you know. <laughs> And for my mum, you know, like she, I remember her once saying to me, you know, women these days have too many choices. It's mm. difficult for them. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, I mean, she, there was this sudden shift after the Second World War, I think, between her generation, which wasn't that different to the generation before hers in terms of values and dreams and aspirations. You know, suddenly, um, you know, here was this woman who'd emigrated from Ireland to England, had had very difficult childhood, working class family, did putting everything into their children to push them up in the social ladder. And all she wanted us for us was peace and security. And now here was this daughter who was just giddy with new freedoms. You know, I could control my fertility. I could travel. You know, I had all these, and she'd given me an education, which was wonderful. So I had all these possibilities. And it was, I think she, I think she sometimes wondered what she created. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it was that, I think there was that huge gap. And there isn't such a huge gap now, obviously, Mm -hmm. between parents and their children. You know, things have sort of smoothed out a lot more. Um, It doesn't feel like we've lost all that societal pressure that you talk about as well. And um, not just directly from your mum, but it seemed like this was coming from other external places, whether that was peers or just what society expected. I mean, how much of that made the decision harder or bigger part of your life? You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> my peers, in a way, <clears throat> when my friends started having babies, they were pretty kind of adventurous, outgoing people. And I was kind of horrified because suddenly they gave up all their plans to go traveling. You know, they'd all, they, they, a number of them were like, oh, yeah, we're going to take our kids with us on, on, you know, hiking expeditions, climbing expeditions. Of course, that never happened. Um, so I didn't, I mean, there were people in among my peers, particularly men, 
some ex-boyfriends who would say things like, you know, having a child completes you as a woman and you'll regret it when you're older and all of that. But interestingly enough, where I felt where I felt myself waver is when we were on our long expeditions in in countries like India, the South Pacific, the Solomon Islands, Malawi, where and this was back in the early 90s, where the the choice to not have children was unfathomable. Mm. Because in those society, and we were traveling in very, we were, you know, fetching up in very remote communities, staying in villages. And of course, the, the first question always was, how many children do you have? Where are your children? And because I guess I'm a recovering Catholic, I, I can't lie, you know? <laughs> and I couldn't, it would have been easier if I just said, oh, yes, they're at home. But I just, I would say, no, I haven't had children. I could never bring myself to admit that I'd chosen not to have children. But I would just say, no, we haven't got them. And the horror and the pity mm. that, you know, that I, this was, the, the, that was the reaction. Um, in the Solomon Islands, people kept telling me that I had to go home and ask my relatives to give me some of their children. <laughs> in India, I would be, we kayaked down the River Ganges <clears throat> for six weeks, stayed in a number of villages where I was always taken off to the temple and pujas were made for me to, to ask that because everybody just presumed that the word was barren. Um, they were also horrified to find out that I was five years older than my husband. That was another big thing. <laughs> yes, they felt very sorry for your <clears throat> husband, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. The really hard one, I think, was in Malawi. We were there at a time when um, the, a drought was be beginning to bite. AIDS was really starting to hit people hard. Malaria was rife. Every village that we went to, there were funerals and funerals for children. And um, one day I was invited to go to the to the funeral of a, a baby that had died the night before. And we got to the house and the women were, the mother, you, I could hear, we were sitting outside the house, this little hut, and I could hear the mother keening inside. And I sat outside with some women who were praying. And um, one of them told me that that this child was the third third baby that this mother had lost to malaria. And I was sitting there thinking how awful. These women can't stop having children. They can't stop them dying. They're trapped by poverty. Um, you know, they have they they just have nothing. You know, they, what a terrible life. <clears throat> and this woman who brought me to the funeral leaned over to me and she said, how many children do you have? And I said, I don't have any. And her face clouded with sadness. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry for you. And it was, <laughs> it was a real moment because I thought, so, you know, I, I thought, you know, this is, this is everything to them. Why isn't it something to me? <clears throat> and I think that was the time I was, I just turned 40. And that was the time when I was, I, I was beginning to waver. I was thinking maybe I shouldn't be traveling around the world on these crazy madcap journeys. <clears throat> Maybe I should be at home having children, making my mother happy. <laughs> but um, that passed. Oh, <laughs> okay. That's quite good to hear. <laughs> it definitely actually, felt on more... That, on, yeah, on that same journey, we got back to England and my husband was still thinking we, we could have, a, we should have a child. Child could come along with us on this, on, on these expeditions that we we're planning more of. And, uh, and then he met up with some friends of mine in England who'd had babies, who'd had planned very exotic travels with their children. And he saw what the reality was for them. And 
I've got a couple of scenes in the book which I think are quite funny, you know, and he sits there in horror, you know, watching this <laughs> these very domestic baby-centered scenarios in friends that we've gone to visit. And he re- all his dreams of, you know, oh, yes, you can have a, <clears throat> a baby. It won't change anything in your life. I just watch them dissolve. <laughs> and and that <clears throat> kind of lust for travel and, and freedom, it feels like you knew from a very early age that you wanted to travel. And, and where did that come from? Do you think that was something that you're born with or something that develops through early childhood? I don't know. I often wonder about that because my parents were so settled. Although, I mean, they had in in their own way had adventures. They, you know, they'd left their home country. They'd taken a big risk. They'd they'd come to England. They'd met there. You know, so I think in a way I maybe inherited that from them. Although then, because of their circumstances, they became very settled. <clears throat> but yeah, even as a child, I was my favorite book at, at primary school was Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. I wanted to be Alice. Actually, in a school play, um, they wouldn't let me play Alice. Uh, I think I had to be the Dormouse or something. I remember being devastated. <laughs> that was exactly <laughs> yeah, just... the sort of part that I'd get because I wasn't the blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, um, I just, you know, I just had, I just wanted, I felt really hemmed in. And I, I, I wanted an exciting life. Um, my other favorite books are the famous five. You oh, know, I God. wanted to be out there. I wanted to be out there having surprises, having unexpected things happen. And as I grew up, these desires really kind of solidified. And I became, I felt very hemmed in by my Irish Catholic community, by my convent school, by the expectations of my mother. And, you know, I just couldn't wait to get out into the world. And when I went to university, I felt my life finally began. And um, I spent every university vacation, long summer traveling and working overseas. And I did become a teacher. And after a year, I just left that and headed off to South America for a year. (laughs) Yes, it sounded like everybody was hoping that it was just a phase that you'd got out of your system. After my my (laughs) first long summer vacation, I'd hitchhiked all through Italy with a friend and Greece slept on beaches. You know, it was just amazing. This was in the early eight, you know, eighties. Um, and it was no, the early seventies actually. And it was just, you know, idyllic and everything was a huge amazement for me, you know. And I just, I was, when I got home, I was already planning the next one <laughs> the following year. And my, my mother said to me, well, I'm so glad you went out and did that and got traveling out of your system. (laughs) Sorry, ma'am. This is going to be a problem. And it was. (laughs) So it just didn't, it, it was the more that you experienced this, the more you wanted Mm -hmm. to do. And how are you planning those trips? Because this is pre, we can't Google on the internet. 50 best travel. I mean, in a way, it was way more adventurous, actually. Mm. We just took off, you know. I mean, there were even fax machines back then. <laughs> this is the dark ages, you know. I remember in uh, when we first went, when I first went to Greece in uh it must have been uh 1971. I remember it, I think it was the very beginning of the Lonely Planet. I remember being at in a youth hostel in Athens, and there was a book there that other other young tourist travelers had written in with advice about where to go and where to stay. And I believe that's kind of how the Lonely Planet thing got going. But it was all sort of like word of mouth, you know, yes. you just met somebody who 
And you just took a risk. You know, you just took a boat to an island and you got off and you found somewhere to stay. And it, it was, uh, and of course, there was no backup. You know, if I ran out of money, which I did, there was no kind of ATM machine. You know, couldn't even phone back to my parents having them wire money. That just wasn't possible. So, so you know, self reliant, so aren't you? And yeah. And I mean, it ended up with some very big adventures. Like when I, you know, I had that when I was, uh, 21, I had a, a, dr- a near drowning in Morocco and, uh, uh, you know, had to spend longer in this remote village recovering and then had to get back to England. And we, we, my friend and I ran out of money, literally ran out of money and managed to get a ferry across to Spain, hitchhiked through Spain, got to France and managed to get a great picking job, which gave us a bit. You know, so. Of course, time. mother and my parents knew none of this because there was no email. I couldn't even didn't have the money to telephone. <laughs> Did they know about how serious that near drowning experience was? Did you tell tell your mother that? I interestingly enough, I wrote her a letter when I was recovering, and I just you know one of those aerogram <laughs> letters, you know, and I've, she gave me all my letters back, and I've still got it. And I didn't tell her why I'd stayed longer in the village. I just said, we really like it here. We're staying on longer. And um, when I eventually got back and told her, she said, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what it was, but I knew something was wrong. So and I, I did tell her how serious it had been, yeah. Once once you were back and safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, in One of the things that you put in the book was that I think, I can't remember which trip it was, but you'd stepped off the plane or the boat or whatever transport it was and you said there was like a buzz and excitement that things were new and unfamiliar mm-hmm. and is it always feeling like that because I I feel quite stressful in those situations and like do you feel any worry or stress and just have doubts or is it always just exciting and it, this is going to be great? Um, oh of course there's always, I, I always do get that feeling if when I get to a new place, or even if I get to a place that I've, you know, that I'm familiar with, I've been there before, but every place has a different smell, has a different feeling. And I just always get excited. You know, if I go back to, you know, every time I get back, go back to India, you know, I'm just so buzzed and thrilled to be there again. You know, Kerala is my favorite part of India and I'm just ecstatic to be back there. But of course there's always, there's always the you know all the kind of worries concerns that you know you have to manage but no i i i always get that i love it i mean i think that's one of for me that sense of of arriving in a another place you know that's you know we always think wherever we are you know wherever people yeah i think particularly in north america people think they're at the center of the world right mm. you, you always get you know i get to another place like this is the center of the world you know this is you know, it's 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 a whole different world, and I'm I'm just stepping into it, and it's so exciting. It's that's such... never I've never lost that. Oh, that's good to hear. And mm. then it's, I I probably should get onto the the topic of the podcast of resilience because <laughs> I got off straight from the um the first question. But yes, um, I am curious about resilience, and and what does that mean for you and then maybe we can get on to all the resilience that's in the book well it's interesting you know I've really thought a lot about it since you invited me onto the podcast and I've realized that some of the big things in my life that you know the big problems that I faced you know 
what has resilience meant? And so, for example, when my my partner Joe Tasker died on Everest, I was thirty years old, and it was a very it's a very young age <clears throat> to face sort of a devastating grief like that. And uh, you know, I've thought back about everything I had to draw on to get through that, to go forward, to not not allow myself to plunge into a deep depression, to not allow it to completely destroy my life because I really felt at the time my life had been blown apart and I had I I didn't know what the future would be I just didn't know how I could go out of get out of this black hole and I did and and I I and I did it by I guess I did it by looking forward and making plans and making goals I I'd never I'd never been at all I'd never been really been fit, even though I was in love with the mountaineer. After he died, I started running. I'd never run before. And just moving my body like that through the natural, you know, through I was, I would go up to Derbyshire and run and, and just, I, I discovered that as a form of meditation. And then I entered myself for the London Marathon. <laughs> I'd, I'd hardly run before. I had six months to train and I did it. And I ran it in four hours, 19 minutes. <laughs> oh, well done. Yeah, I was very proud of that. But it was, you know, I set myself, I set myself this, this goal to kind of move towards something to kind of pull me out of this, this terrible place. And, and I guess I learned from that, 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 um, you know, that's what, for me, that's what resilience was and is, is sort of, is, is just always moving forward, you know, mm. always following what, what feels like is positive and is going to feed me, uh, even though that means taking a big risk. And in, in, in the case of when Joe died, I just decided eventually I've got to move. I've got to move elsewhere in the world. I've got to start something completely new. I've got to challenge myself. And and that's that's what I did. And that's kind of what helped me through that. And, and I think in every, I guess in every hard situation of my life, I think that's that's what resilience has meant for me. Yes, because you were talking at the start about looking back over your life and, and how you dealt with the big things, but then you got on mm -hmm. to that question about motherhood and I was going to go back and say, how do you deal with the big things? But is that exactly what you've just told us? Mm-hmm, yeah. And mm -hmm. when you, you obviously then started writing, or were you writing anyway? Like, how did the book about those experiences with Joe come out? Um. No, I'd never been a writer. Um, that happened. I'd, I'd kept it. I'd never kept a journal. And a few days after I'd learned that he disappeared without trace on Everest, I began a journal. And it was a way. It was just a friend. It was just a receptacle for all these desperately difficult emotions. And then, you know, at first I had a lot of support. But then, of course, you know, as with any big bereavement like that, eventually people have to draw away into their own lives. And then the the journal became really important to me. And um, and I kept that journal. One of the things, one of the resilience things as well, I guess, one of the plans I made after Joe died is that <clears throat> I went to Everest myself with the widow of the guy he'd, he'd been climbing with when they were lost. And we trekked up to 21,000 feet on Everest to the advanced base camp, which is something I could never have imagined doing. I mean, I, you know, I, and it was very hard for me, very challenging. You know, we, we only had a month. We had very little time to, to acclimatize. You know, we, we trek through, we travel through Tibet, we, you know, we, and then we did this amazing trek. 
Um, <clears throat> so I kept I kept a journal of that, and then then after about eighteen months, I stopped writing the journal, but I carried them around with me everywhere I went. They were like a, I don't know why. I just felt they were terribly important to me. I couldn't bear the thought of losing them, even if I went away for a weekend. I'd take them with me in case my house burnt out. You know, they were definitely, you know, when they say, what, what's the first thing you would grab if your house is on fire? I would have grabbed those journals. So when I moved to Canada, I brought them with me. They were just, you know, tucked away somewhere. And then I met Doug, who's now my husband, and fell in love with him. <clears throat> and we be, we decided to make a life together. And I realized that suddenly I realized I can't, I've got so many I've got so many unanswered questions for my relationship with Joe, which was a difficult relationship. I need to sort these out before I go into the future with this new person. And so I pulled out the journals. I started writing them up. And um, I, I suddenly, I, then I decided maybe I'll write a long form article. Um, and that bit of a long story, but that then turned into my first book. I just kept writing and it, and I, I, it was a cathartic experience for me. It was, it was definitely a part of the healing process from from losing Joe, which which was a long process, and and writing the book, and then publishing it, and then putting it out into the world and talking about it was all part of that process. But I hadn't, it, you know, I hadn't expected. First of all, I thought I was writing it for myself. An agent got wind of it, wanted to see it. It sold to a publisher, and I was. Suddenly, to my amazement, I was an author. <laughs> and I love the descriptions of you kind of kayaking <laughs> with your manuscript over to the post office. And That's right. Going back to that time. <laughs> yeah, we lived on a little island um, <clears throat> off Vancouver Island, and we commuted by kayak to the nearest town, a place called Nanaimo. And um, again, back in the days, you had to print out your manuscript. So I, I printed out this manuscript. Doug was away at the time. And uh, and I suddenly thought, I've got to, I've got to get this sent off to my agent. I've got to do it now. And so it was this big parcel, and I, and I set off in a storm in the, <laughs> in the kayak. I should have waited, but I was like, and it was really hard. It was pouring with rain, waves sloshing over me. I got to the post office, clutching this parcel and soaking wet. I had a sou'wester on, and I was dripping everywhere. <clears throat> and I put it down on the counter, and I said to the to the woman behind, I've got to send this off right now to England. And she said, and I've got, I wanted to send it registered. And she said, oh, we can't do that. It's too heavy. You have to go home and put it into two parcels. And I don't normally cry, but I burst into tears. <laughs> and I don't know how we did it, but somehow I got it sent off that day. Yes, yeah, so the moments when you cry in the book are those sorts of ones, aren't they? Yes. And not, <laughs> perhaps not when when you would expect, but yeah. Yeah. And then the second, well, the second book about that, the um, where the mountain casts a shadow. So that was talking to other people that had been through similar. Like, yeah, how how did that come about? And again, was that part of the <laughs> healing process for you? It wasn't. It was a lot longer because um, Fragile Edge was published first in 1989, and it was republished. And then I wrote several other books. Mm. And then it was republished uh, in 1999, and I was invited to the Banff Mountain Film Festival to um, take part in a panel called um, the risk, um, a panel about risk, and uh, and how it impacted families. And so I um, I 
fetched up on this panel, not having really thought about that for quite a while and just blathered on, you know, about my experience. And it caused quite a stir because this was a subject that really wasn't, you know, it was a bit of a taboo subject in the mountaineering world, how mountaineers, the high risks they take and the the high rate of attrition, the the high fatality rate affected those left behind. And it had such a powerful effect on the audience, actually. I had a lot of a lot of adverse reaction, a lot of pushback. My husband said to me later, you've got to write about this. And my first reaction was, no way. <laughs> but it kind of stuck. And um, I decided that I would write a book about the emotional impact of high-altitude mountaineering on those at home uh, and also on the climbers themselves. So I ended up interviewing some of the world's top climbers, their, their partners, their children, their parents. And um, it it was, I think, probably my, my it was a very successful book. It won a big prize in Banff. And it, it opened up that conversation. Um, again, it was very controversial when it was published, but it opened up the conversation of what is that impact of risk uh, on, on those left behind and on the climbers. And, uh, and I think it was all... It was kind of interesting that in a way I've always been thinking about motherhood because it was I found it very interesting talking to parents, well, heartbreaking talking to parents of climbers who died. Um, because one of the reasons I decided not to have children was because after Joe died on Everest, I developed this terrible fear of loss. I thought if it's so awful to lose a partner, what would it be like to lose a child? I just can't go there. And so, in a way, unconsciously, I think I was continuing to unpack that with this book as well. And you said it was controversial. Was that because it was more just the subject hadn't really been discussed before? Most of the books, I can imagine, just being about that achievement and those great heroic stories rather than the times when when things haven't gone gone well absolutely this was it was published in uh oh, 2002 i think which isn't and that yeah, long to, ago <laughs> i know up to that point as you say it had been touched on but the only the only climber that i really knew of that had been it had been really examined was alison hargreaves who was a british climber um and she died on k2 and she was a mother and when she died there was a big hoo-ha about how could a woman take these risks but that question had never that had never happened when male climbers, famous male climbers had died, you know, who had children or or partners, you know, like me. It was just mm. like that. And so I was I was really stepping into I was walking right past a no trespassing sign when I wrote this book and uh really opening a can of worms. And I had I had more pushback from British, the British mountaineering scene actually, than than North American, but it was um in a way it was wonderful because it did it opened up the conversation other people started writing about it and now it's much more out there it hasn't necessarily stopped people going and taking big risks but at least it's being discussed you know and, and what and, did, you know, what there's did you... more work there's more work around trauma and recovery now than there ever was back then back mm-hmm. then it was just like this is what we do and you know the people and and it was also you know a lot of the the, the partners that I talked to were in denial, as I had been, you know. So I think, you know, they would just tell themselves that, you know, this was what the person that they loved wanted to do, and therefore they just had to accept it and not question it, even though they had kids, you know. 
And what did you learn from those interviews and writing the book about risk? I learned about, well, I, I think I learned, well, my next book after that, actually, I examine why people take those risks. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the link between extreme adventure and spiritual experience. And I think in in writing the book, I realized that for some reason, risk is an absolute necessity and, and it, they cannot deny it. Otherwise, otherwise they will be spiritually dead, you know? Um, and so it is, you know, it is, it is for some people just such an essential part of their being. And I, and I feel that it's taking risks like that is a search for transcendence. And that's what I began to explore in where the mountain casts its shadow. I have a whole chapter on that. And I further explore that in, in my next book, Explorers of the Infinite, that you can't deny the fact that, and also I think the world does need risk takers. You know, they, they push us forward in so many ways and you can't, you can't deny that, but there is a cost. <clears throat> and I think the cost has to be acknowledged as much as the necessity for risk has to be acknowledged. And um, in your trips that you did, there seems an element of risk, but I guess not Not the stakes aren't so high. Or, or what is it that was different about your trips that you felt comfortable with? Well, there were a lot of risks, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking of all those stories in the book and thinking, actually, they were really risky. I think maybe. Before- <laughs> I know. They were. They were. But I was doing them with my partner. Mm. Obviously, my poor mum at home had no idea what was going on. I was doing them, although then she did read my books later. <laughs> I was doing them with my partner. We didn't have children. If if I'd had a child, I could not have taken. Me personally, it's not any judgment on anybody else, but I know that emotionally I could not have taken the sort of risks that we took. I mean, we were we were really out in the wilds, you know, kayaking in hippo-infested waters, crocodile-infested waters. Sharks. We did... In the Solomon Islands, we did a 50-mile open ocean crossing. Um, you know, we we had, you know, we were in a lot of very dodgy situations on the on, on our around the world with a kayak trip. Later, we kayaked around Vancouver Island. Uh, we kayaked right down the west coast of Vancouver Island, which is massively exposed, you know, big storms, huge swells. Um um one of our expeditions we <clears throat> we traveled the length of vietnam in 1994 when it had just been opened we traveled on fishermen's boats and old bicycles i mean that that was kind of less physically risky although we did get arrested a few couple of times <laughs> but i think um yeah i mean we we were taking risks not like not like climbing you know kanchenjunga or k2 or something mm. in winter but Definitely putting ourselves out there, making ourselves very vulnerable to weather and, and winds and sometimes people, you know, wild animals. And, but I felt, I guess I could, I guess, yeah, yeah, you know, it was, I was doing it with my partner and I was doing it without a child to worry about. The people seemed such a large part of your trips. And I've read a lot of books where it's been more on the landscape or the wildlife and actually getting away from people. But what came through in the stories that you told in instead was that the people seemed to be one of the main reasons you were doing some of these trips. Like, mm. 
what what did you find on those trips or what did you get from meeting those different cultures oh f- for me and for and for Doug it's 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 the key thing actually I mean we've done wild trips like like for example kayaking in, in very wild parts of British Columbia where you don't see anybody else which is you know amazing in its own way the wildlife and the landscape and the seascape but the but yeah the most enriching journeys for me are those where we're deep into other cultures um encountering you know you know really getting under the skin of of, of the culture staying in villages getting involved in people's lives it's it's fascinating it's 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 for me it's what travel and adventure is all about learning learning about how are the parts of the world tick, you know, and and, 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 and like on some and, ones where you were planning just to stop off and say hi and you ended up there days. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. The the village, one village in in uh when we were kayaking down the river Ganges, we kayaked past uh, a cremation on the on the riverside and uh, we had a, a a local kayaker with us for the first three weeks of that three week trip and he said, Oh, they're waving us over, you know, we've got to go over. So we sat there. Normally, a woman wasn't allowed at a cremation, but I was. An exception was made for me. I was a Western woman. I'd rocked up in this this strange boat, and um, we sat and watched the body burning down. And then the mourners went into the the river for the ritual bathe, and 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 we were told you have to come back to our village, you know, because you have been sent to us by Mother Ganga, the goddess of the the river, and and you are a blessing and. And we had no choice that we were already carrying our kayaks onto the, onto the bullet cart. And we went there, we thought, for a night, and we ended up staying almost a week and became firm friends with this this family and still are in touch with them. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Um, That's lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We stayed. So we, one of them was, uh, the, the, one of the, the family had had a, had a year-old baby, Rishika, and, um, and, uh, you know, we, we stayed in touch with the family and we heard that Ritika was going to college and everything. And she wasn't in touch with us. But 19 years after that trip, we went back to Northern India. We'd always gone back to the South. We went back to Northern India and we turned up as a surprise in the village. We went there by land. And, um, of course, the first thing I was asked was, where, how many children did you end up having? So we went back and it was just such an amazing reunion. And we ended up staying with them for a few nights. And Ritika was at college and um, she rang me up. I was sitting out in the courtyard with her mum and and her mum was making rotis over an open fire. And Ritika rang me up and she said, Auntie, I've heard about you all my life. Uh, My mum has taught me so many stories. I can't believe you're there. And, and, And then she said, will you come to my wedding? (laughs) <laughs> when I get married, I promised I would. And um, a couple of years later, I went back to Northern India again. I was doing a, a recce for our adventure travel company. And I went again to the village. But first, I first I went to Delhi and met Ritika in person for the first time. We went back to the village together. And it was just, you know, it's just to have that connection was just wonderful. Sadly, I couldn't go to her wedding because it happened during COVID. But um Oh, yeah, so, what yeah, amazing so story. To have, those, to have those lifelong friends. And I have a lot of number of stories like that from different countries we've traveled in. We have lifelong friends like that in Vietnam and Kenya, different parts of the world. And it's that's the most enriching thing. And, you know, not having children as well, there is this sense of 
having a network, having a, a, a chosen family, you know, it's kind of, have, you know, having people around the world who are just, are just part of your, just part of, a, part of your family, I guess, you know, people that, that, that I am in touch with, I know think of me and I think of them. And, and even though we don't see each other that often, that's very important emotionally. Yes, because you don't haven't always settled in one place for that long. I think COVID, no. COVID <laughs> forced you a little bit. So has it been harder to get that community or maintain it rather than I'm thinking of somebody who has children that go to the same school and are staying in the yeah. same place? Totally. I mean, a lot of my friends here in Canada who've had children, a lot of their friends became friends because they met each other through their kids, you know, and they know each other for years later. So, and yeah, we have bounced around the world so much. I mean, I've never, I'm not a group person anyway, but I've never been in a book club. I've never had regular yoga classes. You know, I've never had girls nights out regularly. I've never had those things, you know, and, and I, as I got, that's one of the things when I went through my kind of aging crisis, I thought, oh, maybe, is this a big mistake that we haven't got a settled community somewhere, you know, that we, we kind of parachute into places with there a while and we're off again. So that, that has been a concern, but um, that's something that I have worked through and, and I feel it's going to be okay. <laughs> okay. So worked through rather than worked on and thought that. You well, I tried to, we, we, we made a huge mistake. We moved into, um, <laughs> and this is my husband's idea. I blame it entirely on him. It was we never moved... going to go any other way from where <laughs> me reading you're right, the book. You read that. <laughs> he decided we should try moving into a community co-housing place, you know, like an intentional community. And um, I, he went to see this place while I was uh, leading trips in, in um, Kenya and Kerala. And I had to decide sight and scene and I just really had no idea so I trusted him and we moved into this place and it was an absolute disaster <laughs> um a friend of mine has described places like that for the conventionally no for the un did you say that un, un, the conventionally unconventional people you know it was <clears throat> it was very it was very kind of, it had a lot of rules you were supposed to be there for a lot of the year you were supposed to join committees and and it was we just couldn't fit in and um, there was nothing wrong with the people. They were all very nice, but they weren't happy with us always taking off to do other things. And I guess it was kind of a stab at maybe creating a community that would maybe sustain us when we were older. You know. And uh, my husband said, oh, this is just an experiment because we were in our 60s and we moved in there. But we broke the record of moving in and moving out. It was only months. It was, it was, and that's when we, headed off to Catalonia and instead bought this tiny little house in a tiny little village, which has been, which is a real community and a very healthy one. And we've been embraced by it. And um, it's it's sort of, I'm experiencing what village life can be like there, though of course we're not there all the time. So. And at the same time as that, I think you were talking in the book about, again, that decision not to have children and, and your friends were perhaps having grandchildren at that point mm. and it, you were wondering if it was something that would be kind of a comfort or or even just a distraction mm. for taking up time yeah. and things and yes were those 
was that something again that you've you've worked through? Have you come to a resolution on that, or is this just just a a messy feeling? Well, it's sort of interesting going back to what you said at the beginning of the discussion about this, the whole the whole question of being child free by choice or childless not by choice. It's it's very it's it it's not straightforward. There are no clear answers. You know, it it is a nuanced. For me, it's been a very nuanced and complicated situation all through my life. And I, I have kind of a knee-jerk reaction to people, particularly people who are in my age, who, who will say to younger people, don't have children, you will never regret it. Because how can you ever say that? Mm. You know, you don't know how things are going to turn out. I didn't know how things were going to turn out. I didn't think that in my mid-60s, I'd suddenly find those words, you should have children, you'll regret it when you're older, rearing up at me which they did for a while. And so I guess to answer your question, I did go through a period where I thought, did I make a mistake? And I I realized, no, I didn't. And, you know, there is a feeling I sometimes get, but it's not regret. It's more, there's a, there's a term called counterfactual curiosity, which means that you look at, with, you look at with curiosity at ways your life could have gone if you'd chosen a different path. And sometimes I feel that. Sometimes I think, oh, I wonder what it'd be like if I didn't have, you know, if if I'd if I hadn't made this decision, if I had gone ahead and had a family, what would it be like? And but I haven't, I haven't, you know, I I'm I know that the path that I chose was the right one for me. There have been times, you know, my husband had a terrible accident in Catalonia a few years ago during COVID and and when he was in hospital the first night, I had this sudden sense of wanting to reach out to somebody who was part of me and him, a child. And of course, there was no child. We decided that long ago. But I don't think that was regret. I think that, you know, that was just like a reaction to the trauma, you know. And I know now that if I'd had kids, it probably it would have been a different adventure. It would have been a different path. Mm. But I've had, you know, I've had a fabulous life, still having a fabulous life. and. I've done, you know, I've, I've, all, all the dreams that, that I had, I'd exceeded them in ways I couldn't have expected. And I know that that's been made possible by my decision not to have kids. So it was definitely, it was definitely the right decision. How it's going to pan out when, when I'm, you know, really old and frail, maybe I'll have moments where I'm like, oh, yeah, I wish I had somebody to look after me. But you know what? It's worth it. It will have been worth it because, of everything I've been able to do and, and, and all the happiness and, and excitement I've had. Yes. I feel like I'm <laughs> rambling off topic, so I hope that's <laughs> I'm not sure we have a topic, so that's absolutely fine. <laughs> I'm just so interested that's, talking to you. I'm supposed to, to be talking about resilience, but I think but all of this is about resilience really, isn't it? It's like, you know, life can be, you know, if you make, I think if you make, if you step off the, the expected path, if you choose an unconventional life, um, it's good, you know, it's not easy. There are, there are often, you know, I mean, I, I think, that, you know, I, I learned that as well early on because I get both, both my husband and I gave up our careers. I was a teacher, he, he a veterinarian. We decided we were just going to go freelance, become a writer, photographer, adventurer team, see what happened. And very exciting, very wonderful. But, you know, there were a lot of things that we had to deal with, including a lot of insecurity financially, you know, 
that kind of risks that we were talking about before that we took, you know, with our lives. And yes, and it was, but, you know, we had that, we had that feeling that this is what we want to do. And I guess I think the resilience there was like, you know, there are going to be problems, there are going to be obstacles, but let's just, let's just stay on the course, you know, let's, and, and let's just be open to what's going to, you know, other opportunities, take them. Yeah. And just ha- kind of have that, that strength to know this is what we want to do and 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 let's let's face these obstacles and not let them stop us in our tracks yeah i think that for me it's risky to be in that job and stay in one place and i've been in a lawyer and and that wasn't for me and i wonder if it's more that we sometimes they're trying to avoid the uncomfortable and the heartbreak and the really tough times. And in doing that, we're less likely to take the risks and make those big choices. And that leaves us somewhere in the middle. And I think I'm learning that we can't have all the joy and the happiness without the sadness too. And and that's just part of leaving, leading a really rich life, a full life. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely what I got from your book in that I'm ex- I wouldn't expect you to regret or change want to change things necessarily because everything led to the next mm-hmm. path. And you know there were some surprising moments as well that I revisited in the book when my mother was dying. I was with her for the last few months of her life. She was 92 when she died and you know it was kind of interesting because finally I was there. You know? <laughs> I was there all the time in the nursing home with her, you know, and um, a week. And I felt like I was atoning in some way for being the, the the wayward daughter who'd gone across the world and not had kids and had this insecure life, you know, when she'd wanted security for me. And the week before she died, she asked me if I'd ever regretted not having kids. And I was completely taken aback because we, you know, we it had been, I was, in my 50s then and we this is a subject that you know we hadn't raised for a long time and she'd never actually asked me that and i i stopped and i thought and it suddenly hit me before i answered her that of course i didn't regret it but what what i did suddenly realize was i felt terribly sorry that i hadn't been able to give her what would have made her so happy a grandchild from 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 the time i was I was the only daughter, and from the time I was small, she told me how important it was for a mother to, for a mother's, you know, for a daughter to produce a child for for her mother, you know, that direct link. And um, I suddenly realized right then, sitting by her bed, that um, this was something I I could have given her and I didn't, and I felt terribly sorry and full of pain at that moment that I hadn't given her that. And and I regretted that. I didn't, and not that I hadn't had children, but I regretted not giving her that happiness. But I didn't tell her any of that. I just took a hand and I said, no, mom, I've never regretted it. I'm so happy with my life. And she said, oh, I'm so happy. I've always worried about it. Oh, yeah, it felt <laughs> yeah. like you came quite close to the older that your mum I did. I did. I think maybe if you have a child, maybe you understand your mother earlier on, you know, but it took me, 
It took me well into my – we had a huge row when I was in my 40s because she she told me a number of times that I was never the daughter that she wanted, you know, which was a terrible thing for a mother to say. But we had – even though she was very loving and supportive in other ways, but that came out once. And we had a huge row in my 40s, uh, actually after we came back from that big round-the-world trip. And, and I – and it was one of those things that just lanced the boil. I got everything out and, you know, we – we we came to an understanding and our relationship just got better and better and for all those years then until she died which was a great gift mm. and but I, I i but i think maybe yeah i think if i'd had if i'd had a child maybe i would have understood her <laughs> it took a while <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, one of the things that i often see are people saying that i won't understand love I won't know love until I've had a child. And for me, that feels quite difficult to accept in terms of I know what love feels like and I can imagine other <laughs> other types of love. But, yeah, is that something that you feel is missing from your life at all? Or are we missing out that life could be so much richer for us if we'd have no. children? <laughs> oh, good. And that's such an that's such a horrible thing to say. Yeah, you know, and okay. I, I've had that said to me a lot as well, um, particularly by men. You know, men in the adventure community who you know who suddenly became fathers and were always buggering off to go climbing, you know, <laughs> but told me, "Yeah, you'll never you'll never know what love is like until that baby's in your arms." I'm like, no, I I don't. I mean, I know, I do know, and I was aware early on. I mean, I I. I've always craved big experiences, right? And I know that having a child, giving birth must be amazing. I mean, terrible in some ways, maybe it could be, but a really profound experience that I decided not to have. So, you know, I missed a very profound experience. And, but um, yeah, and maybe I don't know that what it feels like to love a child when it's put into your arms, but I have experienced intense love you know, in, in other ways. Um, I fell in love with a child in Vietnam and, and when I was in my 40s and all my mothering instincts just came to the fore. I met a street child who, for some reason, I literally fell in love with him for a sight and tried to help her. I mean, get her off the streets, her and her little brother. And, and we desperately tried for several years and failed, you know, and um, she disappeared. And I felt, I still feel that loss. You know, it was like, it, it was ironic because I, one of the reasons I didn't have children was because I had a fear of loss and yet loss found me in the end. But, but no, love can come in so many, so many different and um, different ways that it's, it's, it's a terrible thing for people to say that they have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and just going back to that story in Vietnam, I found that was just, your book was so rich because you offered all these experiences and, and, it wasn't for me it was just messy without any nicely wrapped up conclusion it was just laying out that this is mm -hmm. nuanced this is so individual and it's it's just not simple at all is it and I wonder if sometimes no. we like those binary good decisions bad decisions yeah. well the other <laughs> no thing doubt. is of course the other thing is of course I mean having a child not not having a child is a risk Having a child is a risk, and you there are no guarantees of what's going to happen. I mean, having a child is a can be a very messy, difficult, nuanced. So it is, you know. I mean, 
I have friends who've lost their children, and that is terrible. I have friends whose children became addicted. I have friends whose friends whose children have moved to the other side of the world, just like I did, and they're heartbroken because they don't see their children, they don't see their grandchildren all the time in the way that I'd like to. You know, so there's no guarantees. Yeah, that's it's, true. Um, because when mm -hmm. you were talking about your mother's death in the book, and I was thinking of my own dad's death with us all around there and I do did have this pang of who's going to be around my bed yes <laughs> but as you say there's no guarantee that even if I had a child that I'd have yes. the, have that relationship yes yes <laughs> I know I know uh, yeah I mean I've I've obviously thought about that a lot as well but like I said it's like whatever if it's if it's some really desperate lonely <laughs> lonely goodbye to my it'll be worth it because I, I made the right decision. I've had this, I've had the life I wanted, you know. Yes. Um, and I think one thing that it also made me reflect on was that maybe when I was younger, just out of university, I thought these school friends and university friends would be my friends for life. And although I'm still in contact with them, I've actually realized that as I reach, as I'm into my 40s, a lot of the friends that I'm spending time with don't have children either and I'm hoping hmm. that we'll have that community and still be friends when we're but you know what's interesting I have reconnected with a lot of a number of my friends who I was at university with who then went off to or you know in the in the days when I was hanging out in the climbing scene in England and hmm. and who went on to have kids and now their kids are grown up and we've reconnected Oh, so, you know, nice. you might come back to those friends, you know, when their mm -hmm. kids are completely grown. You don't know. But, um, yeah, but I think – and I think community can come in so many different ways. That's that's what I'm – that's what I'm looking at now. That's I mean, you know, I'm still exploring this. You know, I'm, I'm – you know, I'm, I'm – I haven't I haven't reached a conclusion about what's going to happen when I'm really old. <laughs> and, I, you know, there's, there's this term in – there's this term in – North America, I don't know if it's come to Britain yet. It's I hate it. It's called aging in place. No, <laughs> what does that mean? You're supposed to make a plan. Oh, to for aging. So aging. You remember there was there was sheltering in place during COVID. I think I don't know who's. I, I've got to find out who came <laughs> up with this awful term, aging in place. So you you know you you, you decide you're going to move in with your kids or you're going to move to a community co-housing, or you make a plan about where you're going to be as you're aging, so you're near to hospital, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you have support. And, of course, <laughs> what are we doing? We're aging in lots of different places. <laughs> we, you know, we spend the summers on a sailboat. We head off to Catalonia for the winters. We're still running trips. We, you know, we're we're still, you know, moving around the world, and uh, we haven't we haven't got a, an aging in place plan. Well, you tried and that, and it didn't go so well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, and and maybe that's you know that's the resilience as well. Hey, you know, we're going to be. It might be tough what's ahead, you know, but we'll find ways through it because we've. We found ways to other things, you know, and uh, which brings me back to, you know, how I began to write my book. You know, how do I move forward into this old part, last part of my life? Look, I've got through other difficult parts of my life. What resilience have I drawn on there to get through? And, and I'm sure 
I'm sure I have faith somehow. It's it's going to be okay. <laughs> and and are you able to draw on other people's resilience, like some of the people that you've met on your travels? There was some real heartbreaking stories, and I just wondered what else you learned about resilience from 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 your travels and adventures. Well, I'm I'm humbled, you know, by the I'm humbled by the people that I've met. Um, by the people that I've worked with in the past. I used to work in Britain with um, Vietnamese refugees, boat people who'd escaped by boat in those terrible little boats and many people drowned. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really aware when we're, you know, we're, when we were traveling in Morocco and, and came across a, a boat a, 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 that, a, a, um, that had been left on a beach by, by people who are obviously uh, migrants, you know, and you know, I, I'm I'm humbled by by what people can survive, and how brave they are. And um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, all through my travels, I and now, you know, just lo- looking at the world, it's it's. I don't know if that answers your question, but um, <laughs> yeah, and then you does. know, and then people who are in my life, like you know, we there's a, a young Samburu woman who we helped in Kenya because. We met her during during one of our uh, we we were doing uh, some elephant work in Kenya and we uh, we were working with women in, in in one village and and in this village we were introduced by the school teacher to a young Samburu woman who was had been his star pupil and had a place at Nairobi University but her father had refused to support her this is a pretty remote Samburu village northern Kenya. He'd refused to support her because from the age of 12, she'd refused to go through female genital mutilation, female circumcision, which was you know, very traditional in that community. So that was her punishment because she stood up against that and refused to, to undergo that. He would not support her to go to, to, to university to take this place. And she was in a very, she was very depressed about this. And, um, he, her mother wanted her to go. So he asked, me and my husband, if we would somehow help her financially. And uh, we met her and she was this incredibly impressive young woman and um, very eloquent. Um, and she didn't know why we'd met her, you know, why we'd asked to meet her. She thought she'd come to meet us in our group because she spoke such good English. And I said to her, um, we hear that you have a place at Nairobi University. And she held her head really high and said, Yes, and I cannot go there because I will not be cut. You know, and this was, I mean, talk about resilience in that mm. village, you know, and with those sort of pressures. She was seen as an impure woman because she wouldn't go through female circumcision. So we and our group decided to support her, and her, her mother agreed to this. And um, months later, she moved to Nairobi and started Nairobi University. It was very difficult for her because her father was so angry at first. And um, some, that's that was 2011. She's now a barrister in Nairobi. Um, she does. She has two children of her own now. She does work. Um, she does a lot of anti-FGM work in Kenya. She works with her community. You know, it's and and she's had to struggle. I mean, obviously, we we supported her financially, but Agnes had to really kind of fight fight to 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 keep on her path you know because 
her father was against this, other people in the village were against this at first, and she just had to stand up for, you know, for her own rights, for her own beliefs. And um, she's a huge source of inspiration to me, you know, and still is. I mean, she, her marriage fell apart, you know, her husband treated her very badly, and she's now a single mother of two children with her own law career and struggling to some extent, but but full of resilience, full of strength, full of power. And, um, yeah, so that really came Agnes. Ac- yeah, it came across when you spoke about her in the book and and also it, going back to the connections that you made from your travels. I mm. found that really inspiring because I – I've seen the other side where it seems to be this kind of people going and viewing and not really connecting in any way yes. with the people in the land. But it, it sounded like that was important to you and also your business as well. Yes, yes. I mean, when when we were, you know, we, we did a lot of fundraising trips in Kenya, but all of it, when we, you know, our adventure travel business has always been about small groups, um, connecting people to the local community, staying in locally run hotels, you know, meeting people that we've got to know. Yeah, I've I've never, I mean, I've always been really against this, just go and take photographs and (laughs) post them on Instagram, you know. You go and you get really involved. But actually there was one quite funny story. We were on one, um, doing one of our fundraising treks for elephants in Kenya, and we were going through a Samburu Samburu village with a group the first time. And a very traditional village. And I said to the group, do not take your cameras out. Do not take any photographs. It's really against the culture here to take photographs of people. And I mean, it's people, you know, the people that were very colorful, there were the young warriors, you know, with all their feathers and adornments and the women with all their amazing beaded jewelry. And But I just said, absolutely no photographs. So we're, we're walking through this village and suddenly out of one of the, out of the manyata, this woman ducks out of her hut as we were walking past, and she takes out a smartphone and started videoing us. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect. You know? <laughs> Life moves on, doesn't it? <laughs> I just thought that was great. You know? It's like, yeah, now you know how it feels. You know? <laughs> oh, and so your book has recently won an award. Well, tell me about mm-hmm. that. It's won the Adventure Travel Award at the Banff Mountain oh, Film and Book Festival, which I'm absolutely thrilled about. Yeah, Banff has been an important place for me, the Banff Centre. I've done a number of writing residences there. and It's really uh, the people that, I mean, the people that go there, the people that present there, they feel like one, they feel like my tribe. You know, they're, they're, they're people who are out there in the world, traveling, exploring, curious about other cultures and and uh, so I'm thrilled to be honoured. Oh, congratulations and well-deserved. And and what else is coming up? I know you're nursing your foot at the moment, so no exciting adventures right now. But No, no. <laughs> I, yeah, I badly broke my foot over the summer and oh. it's going to be a long recovery. Um, <clears throat> I had planned to go on a walking trip to Japan in May. I just have to see if the – I've been told it's, it, it's on the um, – Nakasendo Trail and so it's it's kind of a lot of cobblestones and hard stones and and I've been told that my foot might not like that very much for hours a day even then you know even it's, it's going to be a long recovery that oh, kind of fracture that I, I had hope but we'll that see. You get there. we'll see yeah yeah we'll see hopefully I get there and um yeah going back to 
going back to Catalonia is it feels like a a big adventure. I mean, I we just I love that area, you know, and keep it's so rich and got such an incredible deep multifaceted culture, so much history and um it's wonderful to be exploring that area. And so do you find that you do find places that feel very much like home is that the right word and that you don't want to always like you have had a base it's not like you've been a nomad isn't yes. it, in your life yeah so you no, do we, have we places to put race yeah we've down. always had a base in Canada and you know we've always kind of had small base we've had a small base in Canada and, and now a small base in Catalonia and we had planned to be traveling a lot more from Catalonia but then we you know then COVID got in the way so that all stopped mm. so we have you know I'm traveling with Scatel by that but yeah, there are places that I go back to. Every time I go back to Kerala, I just feel like I, I've come home. You know, I arrive in Kochi and go to little Fort Kochi, and and you know, I know people in the chai stalls and 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 selling vegetables. And it's you know, I love that. You know, I love that feeling of of arriving in a place. I feel like that in Hanoi as well. We spent a lot of time in Vietnam, and and um, there's that sense of it being very other a totally different culture and yet it still feels like a homecoming which is a, a wonderful mixture I feel very lucky to have that yes and and no plans to get in that retirement home just yet you're still oh god no. <laughs> <laughs> good good and how about writing any other projects that you've been working on I'm I'm I've got a I've got a couple of things I have a novel I just found it, the um, the manuscript recently, um, and I wrote that uh, I wrote that back in 1990. I was being pushed by my publisher and my agent to write fiction, so I wrote this a novel, and it's it's based on my time in in uh, Arequipa in Peru. Um, I spent a, a year there, and also traveling to other parts of South America uh, when I was in my twenties, and. Um, I, it was almost accepted by a, a big publishing house and then it fell through at the last minute. And I, I kind of was so discouraged. I just gave up and, and I came across the printed out manuscript recently. Oh, yes. It's been a bit missing. <laughs> but I'm actually, go, I'm actually going, I haven't told anyone this yet, but I am, I'm actually going to transcribe that. And I don't know. Maybe I'll rewrite it. We'll see. And I have another, I have a couple of ideas for a, another nonfiction book, but they're still percolating so I'm not quite sure yet right now I'm just enjoying the success of this one and and uh taking my time with it which is nice yeah. oh great well thank you so much good luck with all the those projects so but enjoy enjoy this book because as I say I found it so interesting rich and and just really authentic as well it was so important for me to hear these voices where it is nuanced, it is layered, it is a little bit messy in places. And I think there's really a place for that. I should mention, thank you so much. And I should mention, I'm going to be at the Kendall Mountain <gasps> Film and Book Festival. <gasps> ah. Yes, I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I'm going there, um, which of course is in next month. And um, I actually, this is something I suggested, but I'm going to be interviewed on stage with Magica Burkhart, who is an American... Um, ice climber, professional ice climber. And she had twins some years ago. And she's written, uh, she wrote um, a, 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 a nonfiction book, a memoir, which is a series of letters that she wrote to her twins from the time that they were in the womb until they were four year, three, three years old, I think. 
and her memoir is called More. <laughs> so we're going to be discussing <laughs> More and Instead on stage <laughs> on, on Sunday and on, on, on the, during the, the Candle Festival, which I think is, I can't remember the date, I think it's the 19th. Yeah, that sounds right. And I just, one of my friends was texting saying, are you going? And I'm like, no, I don't think so, because I've got my operation just after. And oh. But now I'm like, oh, so much I want to do that, see there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think it'll be a very interesting discussion. I'm, I'm really pleased that's worked out. And I love the fact of more and instead. <laughs> <laughs> Feels feels like it was meant to be, you two talking yeah. about that on stage. Yeah. Well, good Absolutely. luck with that. And thank you so much for coming and talking about resilience. Thank you for thank you for inviting me. It's been a delight. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.